we have a new podcast here at Fresh Expressions called The Rural Revival Podcast, and we'd like to give you a taste. Find it at freshexpressions.com slash podcast and subscribe today. Welcome to the Rural Revival podcast powered by Fresh Expressions. We'd like to welcome you especially today because this is our first episode. Yeah, and uh, we've never done this before, so this is going to be kind of fun. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, Kathleen, uh, how, how do we get involved with a podcast here? Uh, well, I am on the Fresh Expressions team, and uh, we are doing a lot with rural uh churches and ministry. And so we thought that it would be a great idea for us to do a podcast together. Exactly. And uh, we pastor in a rural area together. We're in Southern Vermont, um, which is basically entirely rural. Um, and so we're in definitely a rural part of the of, of Southern Vermont. So uh, we... My name is Kathleen Blackie. And I'm Chris Blackie. You know, we're already forgetting what we're supposed to be telling you about. Um, and we and we co-pastor together in in the same church. We do. We've been here for 13 years, and uh, we're excited to share a little bit about what's going on in rural ministry. We're, we've got a lot of really great interviews for you. Um, we've already done a bunch of the interviews, so we're really excited to share those with you. And also along the way here, one of our, our ideas is that you're going to get to know us a little bit. You're going to hear some of our stories uh, just as we kind of navigate hosting the podcast with you. Um, and certainly one of the things we want to do is also get some of your stories and input because we think that's a, an important part about uh, rural ministry together. So um, we have a, 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 a email address. What's the email address? Podcasts at freshexpressions.com. All right. And we just started a uh, Facebook group up and the Facebook group is Rural Revival Podcast Community. Um, so you can search for that on Facebook and uh, and share stories that way as well. All right. Enough about kind of the introduction, I think. Uh what and we want to get to know each other a little, or yeah, we know each other. We're married, but we want to give you a chance to get to know us a little bit. Um, so first of all, Kathleen, where did you grow up? And uh, yeah, where'd you grow up? Mostly New Hampshire, uh, with the exception of three years in Virginia. So like Manchester, New Hampshire, or Berlin, no, 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 New no, no. Hampshire. <laughs> a small town uh, in central New Hampshire. It was probably like twenty four hundred at the time. Yeah, a little bigger than the town we grew, we live in now, but yeah. a small town. And, uh, spoiler alert: I also grew up in uh, the same town for the most part. Actually, my parents still live in the house uh, I grew up in, and uh, quite frankly, um, my grandparents all grew up in the town I grew up in, and. Uh, Many generations back to the Civil War, uh, mostly of my family grew up, not not entirely, but almost entirely in uh, Samerton, which is a little town in New Hampshire that we are both from. Um, you want to talk a little bit about how we came to ministry together? How did how did you how do we go to? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I agree. Chris had this long story about um, a grandfather who told him that he was going to be a pastor one day. And so then years later, it came back to he had this beautiful story. Um, And once he started talking about really feeling this call, I was planning on working um, while he went to seminary. And then a few pastors and actually their spouses said, Kathleen, we think that you should consider going to seminary as well. And I thought that was crazy, but I decided I should probably pray about it. And very clearly, I heard the Lord tell me that he wanted me to go to seminary with Chris. I didn't know at that point that I was going to be a pastor. Um, I, I I didn't I wasn't sure what God had in store for me. Uh, it was only like midway through uh, seminary where our 
mentor and pastor said, Kathleen, I think God's calling you to be a pastor as well. And so that kind of led me um, to discovering what God had was calling me to do. Uh, and then we, uh, we did seminary and we felt really called to Northern New England and we love uh, small towns. We lived in a small city before this and and it was we knew that that wasn't for us. Um, it was part of seminary our seminary experience. So um, we ended up in a small town in southern Vermont. Yeah, um, and for for me, uh, you know that the process by which that happened. I'm so thankful for those uh, for those mentors uh, who encouraged you. Um, I, I would not have known how how much God was calling us to ministry together. Um, certainly at the time when I was feeling very called to uh, to, to, to becoming a pastor. Um, I, I definitely did not know that myself, but um, th- those voices uh, to you and certainly secondarily, I guess, to me as well, um, were really helpful in us starting to recognize our call. Although I would say um, for me, I think the rec- the realization I came to uh, that took uh, even beyond seminary, even beyond when we first arrived here in Southern Vermont was exactly how ministry together was going to look. Um, looking back on it, it makes all the sense in the world that we would basically share ministry together as co-pastors. Um but uh, we know lots of other pastoral couples. Um, we had actually had uh, uh, some mentors who were who are pastoral couples and things like that. And uh, they their ministries uh, sometimes were shared, but sometimes not. And certainly, there's lots of ways to do that. But in looking back on the way God has kind of called us together to things in our lives, it's not surprising that um, He called us to uh, really work together as well. And so, but that really didn't become crystal clear in my mind. I think until we moved here to Southern Vermont and started pastoring together, um, mm-hmm. and then it became really clear that oh no, this is something we kind of share. We obviously have different interests and different things that we do, but in terms of ministry together, it very much feels like God has called us to be um, just together and that kind of thing. Um, so. Uh, I want to tell them the story, uh, a little brief version. You'll get a longer version of this probably at some point, but a brief version of uh, kind of what the first year of our ministry looked like here in South London area. Oh man, <laughs> it was quite the year. Uh, so we moved here in the middle of the winter. It was a snowstorm uh, with a three-week-old baby. So that was crazy enough as it was. Um, however, that wasn't the craziest part of our year. Uh, about six months after we moved here, our church building that had been standing here for 176 plus or minus years uh, was destroyed by a fire in just a few short hours. And that completely changed the trajectory of like everything. Yeah. Uh, I would say one thing with the church fire, it's, it's not, we're, so, we're far enough out from it now that finally it feels like it's not the, the define, I mean, it's still the defining moment of our time here, but in many ways it, it's, it took years for that not to be this very much the central point of it. And certainly a lot of effort into uh, rebuilding and things like that. Um, and figuring out how to be, a, how to be a church without a building. Um, certainly you'll, you'll hear stories about that mm. as well, but, um, in a rural area, but it was, uh, yeah, there's no way to deny when you, when you serve in a small rural church, um, and it's just, and the building's destroyed by fire, it's a, it's a defining moment. Mm, so absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, we now have three children. Um, so we have our, our oldest, Sarah, uh, who was uh, three weeks old when we first moved here. Then we have a son, Daniel, who is 11 now. Um, and then we have our youngest is Priscilla. She's six. And uh, they're in the same school this year for the first time, which is great. Um, and uh, we're going to try not to talk too, too much about the kiddos, but you'll hear some stories about them. Um, we promised them we wouldn't share embarrassing stories. Absolutely. So try to hold us to that. If <laughs> keep us in check there. Uh, so Kathleen, um, how did you end up working for Fresh Expressions? Uh, good question. <laughs> uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, the director approached me and said, uh, Kathleen, I know you do some communications work for other organizations. And would you think about 
um, joining our team. And it seemed like a great fit. Our youngest was going to be in preschool five days a week. So our schedule was, we don't do, we didn't really do childcare. So our schedule is going to be a little bit more free. And so um, I was really excited about the opportunity and I love, I love this position and uh, I love the rule. Um, I love like all things rule. So this is great. Um, I love to do this. And I'll just say, uh, to, to add to that, I think, um, it, you have, you have really amazing administrative skills, which I lack, which is what, uh, and, and you get to use those a lot for fresh expressions. I think that's amazing. Um, and certainly, uh, a lot of the podcast stuff that's happening, I'm happy to get on and talk about stuff, but a lot of this wouldn't happen if, if you didn't make the wheels happen behind you, not just you, but certainly you and some others make the wheels turn behind the scenes here. So, uh, yeah, it really does suit your skills really well. I think it's been a great, uh, great thing for you and, and what God's calling you to do. Um, one thing about me, uh, another thing about me, one thing that happens when you're in a rural community and your church burns, uh, you join the fire department as the mm-hmm. pastor, um, uh, or at least I did. Uh, I probably actually was, I knew a bunch of people who had done chaplaincy for, for fire departments before. And so I probably would have joined the fire department anyway, but that certainly sealed the deal. So um, uh, the week after the fire happened, I went down to the first meeting, mostly to say thank you to, the, to, the, to our local fire department for all the effort they put in uh, and said, you know, I'd love to stick around. My original plan was to stick around and do a little bit of mostly chaplaincy work and I don't know, but, uh, uh, when you're relatively young and, um, you're in a rural community and you join the fire department, the first thing you realize is they need a lot of help. And so, and I also enjoy, and I found that I enjoy uh, firefighting. So, uh, I'm, I, yes, I serve as chaplain to an extent, but I also, I'm certainly a firefighter. Matter of fact, at this point, I'm one of the more experienced guys, um, who's been around, not there's plenty of guys who've been around longer than me, but, uh, and one thing you'll notice about Chris is when he gets really excited, he starts fast. talking really fast. So I apologize in advance. So we're going to work on that throughout <laughs> this season. I've only been working on it, uh, since we, since before pastor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do what we can. Um, Kathleen, uh, you got to tell them a little bit of the story. You're going to hear sourdough bread stories. Uh, how, uh, tell them about your, how your sourdough journey has kind of gone. Um, so five years, oh, almost five years ago, I started baking with sourdough and um, it's become a hobby, but I feel like much more than just a hobby. It's been just like a wonderful way for me to connect with God. Um, And I started making loaves of bread for our community, mostly because I really enjoyed baking and I made too much of it. And so I do bread trades. I make it for teachers or strangers. And um, you'll probably hear some stories as we go along about that. Definitely. Um, it's, it's one of the, one of the unique ministries. I think God has definitely called you to, uh, one final thing about me. There's lots of other stuff, but one thing uh, we wanted to share with you this morning, uh, I went to undergraduate school for meteorology to be a weather person, uh, probably not on TV. That wasn't ever really the plan, but, uh, to maybe work for the national weather service or something like that, uh, before God really made it clear that he was calling, uh, me into pastoring. And so, uh, one thing that I have done with that though, is I do have a Facebook page. Um, I know most of you are, who are listening to this are not in Southern Vermont, but if you are, uh, you should follow the West River weather guy on, uh, on, on, on Facebook. And mostly I'd say it's mostly a YouTube channel at this point where I do forecasts uh, during the week. And I use that as a way to connect with people. Uh, at least I try to use it as a way to connect with people and to talk about the weather. Yeah. Living in a rural place, uh, no one forecasts like, you know, we can't turn on the news and see forecasts for our area. So, uh, Chris is definitely meeting a need. Um, by forecasting for Southern Vermont. Yeah. And it's, I, it's something I would, I would be doing anyway. Uh, and so now I just get to share that with other people. Um, like I said, you'll get to hear a bunch more about us as we go through the, the podcast, but we did want to take a little bit of time. We won't take this much time at the beginning of every, every podcast to talk about ourselves. But we did want to give you a little bit of an, uh, just a, 
uh, information about who we are and um, and so that you have some understanding of that. One thing we want to do each week uh, is talk uh, about um, oh, oh, sorry, a way that you would get know that you have found the right podcast. So how do you know that this rural revival podcast about rural, about leadership in rural churches, uh, whether uh, pastoral leadership or lay leadership, how do you know you found the right podcast? So uh, Kathleen, uh, what's our story going to be about this week? Pratt's Bridge. You actually know way more yeah, about yeah. this than so, I do. Um, you know, you, you, if you know you live in a place, in a rural place when uh, there the names for things uh, stick around even after things change, right? So if, if, if a house is referred to by a family name and the family hasn't owned the house in 30 years, yeah, you live in a rural place. Or in our case, uh, there's this, uh, I, one of my first fire calls ever, uh, we're going to share one fire story. First fire calls ever. There was a brush fire. Um, and we got, uh, the, the pager goes off and it says that it's near Pratt's bridge on the uh, West river trail. Um, now I did not know where Pratt's bridge was, which was fine. Cause I was not driving. I just went down to the fire station and, and mostly I was like, should I even be here? But they're like, Oh yeah, it's a brush fire. Come, come right along with us. So I jumped on the truck and we're driving out to Pratt's bridge. I didn't know where the West river trail was. It's kind of a hiking trail uh, near uh, in, in Londonderry. So we, we, we drive down this hiking trail in the fire truck. That was quite the adventure as a first call, but we get to this spot and I get out of the truck and I look and they're talking about Pratt's bridge. There's, there's no bridge. The river was right there, but there's no bridge, but there are like two big concrete pilings that are standing up in the middle of the bridge, which is basically in the middle of the woods at that point. And I didn't find this out till later, but that used to be Pratt's bridge. Uh, Pratt's bridge has not existed for at least 30 years. Um, it, uh, it was taken down. Um, uh, and, uh, used to be there. You did used to be a road that went through there, but there's not anymore. And, uh, I just felt like, uh, that's definitely, uh, if, if that story seems like it could happen in your hometown, uh, then you are definitely listening to the right podcast. Today, uh, we're talking to Alan Stanton. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about Alan? Yeah, Alan, uh, this was a, a great interview. Really excited to share it with you. Um, Alan uh, is a uh, is an ordained pastor, um, a Methodist pastor. He is a uh, he wrote a book. Um, called and I'm reclaiming recl- role. thank you sorry <laughs> reclaiming role the book's really good it's kind of a it's it's, it's a bit of a scholarly book it's uh, you know uh since seminary i don't read a ton of books that are really well footnoted his book was really well footnoted footnoted good stuff really good interesting stuff in there about thinking about ministry and thing uh, in rural locations and uh our conversation certainly reflected that um he currently works um sorry let me get my notes out here he currently works for the uh want to get this right college of dentistry at the university of tennessee health science center um where he helps with uh advocating for access to uh rural uh, dental care in rural locations which is really cool and a really cool ministry um so but he's very excited about all things rural ministry um and so our interview really reflected that well before we get started with the interview what's uh we want to give you a little preview uh what was one thing um that was uh one thing that you learned from the interview, Kathleen. I don't know if this was exactly something I learned, but it was good to hear this from him, uh, that the church in rural areas is one of the only institutions mm-hmm. that can bring about meaningful change. Um, I really appreciated that because uh, sometimes it doesn't feel like you make much of a change in your community, but um, but it was a good reminder. Yeah. And we fleshed that out a little bit about how the, why the church is uniquely uh, situated for that. And one thing I learned, uh, I talked about ways to evaluate our ministries in rural contexts. 
I really appreciated using the example that uh, if there's a church that has had 20 people in attendance since the 19 uh, consistently the entire time since the 1950s, uh, how many people come on a Sunday morning is probably not the best way to evaluate the uh, impact that that ministry is having. So if you've had 20 people and you're in a real, rare, really rural location and you still have 20 people 70 years later, uh, probably some really interesting stuff has happened, but just counting how many people are there on a Sunday is probably not a great way to evaluate that. So talk a little bit about that in the podcast as well. So without further ado, here's our interview with Alan. We'd like to welcome you back today. Uh, we are talking with Alan Stanton today. Uh, Alan, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did God bring you to the place you are in and call you to the work that you do now? Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Alan. <laughs> uh, I grew up in rural North Carolina, and I think like all good ministry stories, mine has been a winding road of mm. unpredictable stuff. And me saying, oh, I'm not doing that. And then I would, was doing that, um, which seems to be the constant theme in my ministry is I'm not doing that. And then I'm doing it. Um, so I started, I grew up in a rural area. <clears throat> I went to college and um, had, I did a degree in political science and I was going to seminary and I got this phone call one day that said, hey, do you want to become a rural pastor and we'll pay for your seminary education? And I thought, no, I do not. I do not want to go back home. Um, I have no desire to go back home. And then a friend of mine, there were two conversations I had. And one of those was with a friend of mine who said, what do you want to do long term? And I said, I really like to do community development work. And mm. he said, why can't you do that in a rural space? Like you're from rural North Carolina. You've been to these communities. Why do you think they don't need community development? And how are you going to do it through the church somewhere else? And I didn't have a good answer for that. So that was one. Um, and then the other conversation I had was with my um, exit interview for my student loans, where I looked at the large number of student loans coming out of undergrad. And I thought, well, you know, rural ministry doesn't sound that bad for five years. Um, so I took the scholarship <laughs> and went to seminary. And what I found was I really loved rural places. I, I got to serve mm -hmm. in rural churches over the summer. I got to sort of reorient myself to, sorry, <clears throat> I got to reorient myself to how I was thinking about rural communities how I thought about the place where I grew up and the really, and the strengths of the place where I grew up and the, mm. all the challenges facing rural places. And I got to see how the church in rural places really is the only institution that can bring about meaningful change and lead meaningful change. Like it's the only anchor institution in a lot of these communities. And so I felt really called to support rural churches and rural places. Um, so after seminary, I, went and worked at NC State for a year. They had a new initiative that was designed to work with churches to help them engage in their communities a little bit more. Um, decided that I was consulting churches that, without ever having been a pastor. So I thought that was weird. I needed to be a pastor. And so I, I became a pastor of a small rural church in North Carolina, um, which I loved. And um, that church really just taught me how to follow Jesus, I think, um, just mm -hmm. their sheer dedication and the commitment they have to their faith and all areas of their faith and how they incorporate that into their daily lives, like really taught me what it meant to be a Christian. Um, and then I got a phone call one day that said, do you want to come to Tennessee? Um, and I thought, we'll, we'll give this a whirl. Let's see what happens. <laughs> so I ended up in Tennessee um, working at a small Methodist college, uh, leading the Turner Center for Rural Vitality. 
Um, we were acquired by the University of Tennessee about two years ago now. Um, so I worked for the University of Tennessee Southern. Um, and I was still doing the same work, working with faith communities and rural churches to um, help them become leaders in their communities. And about six months ago, I got a phone call from a friend in Memphis, of all places, and said, hey, look, we're starting this new initiative to expand access to dental care in rural Tennessee. Um, hmm. I think you'd be a really good fit for it. Would you be interested in applying? Um, I didn't think I'd get the job, um, but I did. And so we just moved to Memphis, and I get to travel all over rural Tennessee now uh, to work with a bunch of different agencies. So we're, we have partnerships with like interfaith dental clinics. We have partners with community agencies and churches. And then a great part of my ministry is I get to work with the University of the Ozarks. They have a, they're launching a new center for rural ministry. And mm -hmm. I um, am a consulting fellow with them to teach rural pastors in Arkansas and to, and to guide rural pastors in Arkansas. And I, so I, I spend uh, about three weeks a year down in rural Arkansas, just getting to hang out with pastors and teach. And we, I love hearing their stories and um, seeing what they're doing in their congregations is a real blessing for me. So that's a way too long of an answer, but I've had this kind of meandering road where I think, oh, okay, well, I think this is what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> and somebody, God has called me off in a different direction. Yeah, I, I, um, it's really encouraging just as as a as a rural pastor to hear um, both uh, uh, the the different resources that I think um, we're starting to see get uh put into rural ministry and how you've been involved in that to some extent and are involved in it now. I think that's, um, uh, it's, it, it, uh, as you, it, we're going to get into your book certainly here in a bit, but I talk about one of the things that happens is, is in rural ministry is it, you can feel a disconnect certainly from other people, but also from the resources and things like that. And, uh, so I'm, it's just really good to, to talk to somebody and to, and to hear from somebody who, um, is on that end of trying to make sure that there are resources there specifically for rural, rural pastors and things like that. So. In congregations. Yeah, and that's my big motivation for my work because I thought <clears throat> I've always thought that um, I would go look for resources on how to lead my like how to better understand my congregation, right, or how to work with congregations in rural places. And the advice I would get back would be, I, I mean, we see this in a lot of places in within the church. So um, either some version of urban renewal, um, where mm -hmm. those practices have been taken and tried to like apply to rural congregations, mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily work the same way because these congregations and these communities don't work the same way. Or I would get advice from like really large church pastors about how to grow my worship attendance. And I'm sitting there going, okay, well, I only have a thousand people around my church. Yeah. So I am not going to have a church of 3000 people. Yeah. Um, like statistically, it's just impossible. Yeah. So <laughs> like I need something different, right? Like the leadership practices yeah. that work in a large membership church in a, a major city don't work in rural North Carolina or rural Tennessee or rural Vermont. Like it just, it's different. Yeah, yeah definitely. A hundred percent. It's different. Now let's talk to you about your book a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, in your book, Reclaiming Rural, you talk about a uh, talk of the two main narratives people have about rural areas, one as an agrarian paradise and the other as rural decay. Can you summarize these two narratives and talk a little bit about why they both have elements of reality as well as misconceptions? Sure. So when people think about like rural places in general, I, I find that we tend to default into one of these two, right? So the agrarian paradise is um, this idea that every rural place is a farm community. Um, every rural place is just filled with people who are like at one with nature and at one with mm -hmm. land. And, you know, I, I always like to show this picture of a little girl feeding a sheep um, and people will go like, oh, yeah, this is what it means to be rural. Um, and there's really great things about that narrative. So 
I think it highlights and within that narrative itself, it highlights a lot of the community strengths that are there. It gets fused into this conversation about like the goodness of rural people. I think it's good to hold up what's nice about our rural communities and that they have strong community bonds. They, they care about their organizations. They care about each other. Um, those are all great things. and I don't want to diminish them. On the flip side of that, um, we gloss over all the nuances of rural places in that narrative. So only about 30% of our rural counties in the U.S. are agriculture dependent. Um, a yeah. lot of our rural places are dependent upon manufacturing or um, ecotourism or mining or I mean, yeah. there's all these different industries. Um, and when we think about just farmers, right, like you, you just forget about all those places. Um, and I also find that that narrative in particular can commodify rural places in really unhelpful ways. I've heard a lot of um, large church pastors talk to uh, small pastors in rural gatherings or, or church leadership gatherings, and they'll tell these stories about, oh, I love, you know, when you were when I was in rural ministry and I love like the beauty of your community. Um, but the subtle message underneath that is like, I loved it then I would never do it again. Right. Yeah. And so it's, yeah. it's a place to like visit or um, just to check out, but you don't want to like stay there. And we saw that during COVID, right? People from urban cores were leaving their really expensive apartments. Um, yep. It was a lot harder to live in New York City. Um, so you could go to this rural place where you had a second home or you could rent a house. And um, it actually put a lot of stress. Y'all are nodding. So I'm assuming y'all. Yeah, I was gonna say, hey, in Southern Vermont, a lot of New York. Yeah. We, we love our second homeowners. They drive the economy here. But man, did a lot of them move here for COVID. And, I mean, it's hard because, you know, like I have a friend who works in the mountains of North Carolina. It's this really mm. great community full of recent retirees. We call them halfbacks because they lived up north, moved to Florida. It was too hot. They moved halfway back. Halfback. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Settled in the um, mountains of North Carolina. And or they, you know, they'll come up for the summer or something and then go back down to Florida for the winter. And that's great. Um, but when all of these people started descending from Atlanta and Florida onto this small mountain town, they don't have a hospital that can support yeah. that many people. The grocery stores can't support that many people. Yep. Um, they're, I mean, they're just not used to it. And so all of a sudden there's this extra strain on these communities. And it really is a way of commodifying these communities. And I mean, we've seen it all throughout like U.S. history. Our energy, yeah. for instance, comes from rural places. Look at Appalachia, right? Um, our energy comes from these small rural communities. And we go, oh, isn't it beautiful out in the mountains? All right, I'm going to drive home now back to my city. So that's yeah. a kind of a dangerous thing about that narrative. Um, and then on the other end, you, I, I often hear us talk about like rural decay. So mm. we talk about you know, all rural economies are declining. All rural communities are declining. The population is decreasing. Um, there are some rural communities where that's true. There are some cities where the population is decreasing, right? Um, there yep. are some cities where the economy is declining. And people use really bad stats to support this argument. So they'll say like, oh, there's more wealth in cities than there are in rural places. Well, yeah, it costs a lot more to live in New York City than it does to live in Pulaski, Tennessee. Like yep. it costs so much more, right? <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> even between, you know, where I lived previously, it was about an hour south of Nashville. I think a livable wage in Nashville at the time, the last time I checked the stat was like sixteen thirty an hour for one a single person. Um, for a couple in Pulaski, it was like thirteen dollars an hour for the two of them. So, like even in that short of a drive, um, there's a huge cost increase. So of course, there's more wealth in rural places. I mean, urban places. But that doesn't mean that rural places are poor. In fact, like there's a um, 
supplemental poverty index. And when people apply that, actually rural places have less poverty than urban places mm. um, because it accounts for that cost of living. Mm. So there are good things about this narrative. I think you know it can highlight some of the needs in rural places. And there are a lot of needs in rural places, access to medical care, access to broadband, um, poverty can be an issue, right? All these things are, are true. On the flip side, sometimes we just look at it and say, okay, well, these places are dying. So let's not um, let's not help out. And mm. I think that applies to rural churches a lot too, because we'll look at a rural church and say, oh, it's small. Um, so it must be dying. And here's a mm. church. I've seen this all the time where you have a church that since like the 1950s has been averaging 20 people in worship. That doesn't tell me it's dying. It tells me it's quite stable, right? <laughs> like yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Replacing yeah. their population. Um, because I'm, I'm going to guess that the majority of the people were not there in the 1950s or they were yeah. kids in the 1950s and you still have 20 people. Um, that's a thing we should celebrate. We shouldn't hold that in contempt, right? Like that's a good thing. That's vitality yeah. in a rural place. So um, that narrative of decay can sort of wash over that and say, oh no, they're small, so they're dying. Yeah, the, um, I, certainly. And it's interesting living in a place where I think both of those things can can feel true. At the, you know, that, that certainly, I mean, we live in a, a ski resort is essentially the driver of our economy here. And of course, it's a, it's a beautiful place. People love to come here and vacation. They own second homes here. Um, it's, it is a beautiful place. Um, but it's it does have uh, a lot of the complicating factors of, of life as well that you kind of are, are typified. You know, lo- the local economy, while helped a lot by the ski areas, does sometimes struggle with that. It can be complicated. There's a, often a t- in our situation, there's a two tiered system. You know, you kind of you have second homeowners who often are much wealthier um, and and have different expectations of life than than most of the locals yeah. do, and uh, that definitely causes friction and things like that. So um, yeah, ministering in those circumstances is uh, it's a, a winding road certainly. There was a really great book that came out, I think in 2020 or 2021 called Dividing Paradise. It came out right mm. after I submitted my manuscript or I would have completely written my book, uh, like rewritten. <laughs> but it was by the sociologist, uh, I think in Washington, Jennifer Sherman. And she studied one of these towns like like yours, where mm. it's full of ecotourism and people who come in from the city, from Seattle in that case. Yeah. Um, and how it exacerbates the socioeconomic divides in these communities because people are bringing in totally different cultural assumptions. They're bringing in totally different markers about what is valuable and good. So Mm. for instance, um, a family could really trade on, and I I experienced this growing up, you know, people knew my grandmother and my grandfather. Like I never knew my grandfather. He died when my mom was 12, but people Mm. would vouch for me based on him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hardworking family. Um, if he's, if he needs help, like he'll get, he'll, you know, he'll work hard to make sure it's right. Like he'll repay the favor. And I could get stuff on that. Like I could, I mean, like not buy things at the store, but if I needed a favor getting a summer job, like I could vouch for, like people would vouch for me. He's a hard worker. This is his grandma. This is his grandfather, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. When people move in from Charlotte or Atlanta, they don't carry that same like history and they don't carry that same like family values. Like it's a different set set of values, right? So, um, and it's not good or bad. It just, it's it's like, they're just, different ways of exploring the world and it it really can exacerbate a lot of the tensions that are existing in that community so what we find in this is like poverty actually like the rate of poverty increases and the wealth disparity increases um things like people retreat into political camps and become more entrenched in their politics so liberal communities become more liberal conservative communities become more conservative and like it's, it's just fascinating um how those changes can yeah 
I'm taking us down a winding right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But I, I mean, it certainly speaks very directly to our, to our community. And um, uh, so what was the name of the book again? I think it's definitely worth uh, people hearing that again. Dividing Paradise by Jennifer Schwimmer. It's all okay. about rural gentrification. And I, I think it's one of the best books on rural studies in the last five or 10 years. Awesome. Now I have something else for my reading yeah. list. That's good. Okay, you'll love it. <laughs> uh, now, what are some real strengths you see in congregations that serve rural areas? Yeah, I think there are four that I see across the board. And a lot of different congregations have different strengths, right? So this is the caveat here. Um, if you've seen one rural congregation, you've seen exactly one rural congregation. <laughs> yeah. um, so we joke about that in public policy. Like, If you've seen one rural place, you've seen one rural place. Um, so... But I do find some commonality. So one, I think rural churches on the whole are some of the only permanent institutions in their communities. Um, Mm. So in an urban core, you have corporate headquarters, you have philanthropies, you have hospitals, universities, all that's great. In rural areas, um, philanthropy dollars don't really flow into those rural areas as much. You might have a hospital, but it also might be closing as a lot of rural hospitals are, or it doesn't have the same services. Um, You probably don't have a corporate headquarters, most likely. Um, Mm. maybe you have like a factory or a manufacturing plant. Um, what you do have is a ton of churches, right? (laughs) These churches have been around forever and they're entrenched in the community. Um, and they are really the only anchor institutions. They, they are really the only place where people gather consistently. Um, which leads to the second point of the second strength, which is that these churches are still trusted. Um, we tend to trust our congregations still. So Mm. when people in our congregation, need advice about starting a small business, they don't go to the state small business agency. They go ask Fred, who sits next to them in the pew, who started a business mm-hmm. five years before, right? If you need yep. a ride to the hospital or to the doctor's appointment, you don't call it like some service to take you. Like there's no Uber. Um, so you go ask Brenda at what she's doing on Tuesday and if she can get you to the hospital, right? Yep. Um, so we still trust the people in our congregations and we trust our pastors still. Um, in fact, we saw in during COVID that pastors who advocated, regardless of the political surroundings in their community, like the political leanings, pastors who who mentioned getting the COVID vaccine, their congregations were more likely to get the COVID vaccine mm-hmm. as well. Um, pastors who said they were not going to get the COVID vaccine, their congregations were more likely to not get the COVID vaccine. Now, that's not necessarily a, a pure causation, but there is a strong correlation where people were listening to what their pastors were saying. Um, and I mean, you guys as pastors already know this, but Sometimes you end up doing things that you never intended to do because you're the trusted person. I sat with parishioners who got defrauded of a couple thousand dollars and I'm with the bank with them because I'm the most educated person they know. Um, And that's scary because I have known nothing about like navigating fraud (laughs) in a bank, right? (laughs) But I know who to call. Um, So we're trusted. And then third, I, um, we, we, we tend to have a good cross-section of the community within us. Um, so in an average congregation, you have teachers and nurses and small business owners, right? All these different areas of expertise, whether or not we utilize that or not, that um, that's a question for later, but um, we have it, like they're in our mm-hmm. views. And I, I kind of joke sometimes where, well, in the public policy world, we spend a lot of time trying to get all these different groups together and we have it on Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just there. Um, and I, yeah. I think sometimes we forget that people bring in those expertise. They'll kind of like check it at the door and be like, oh, I'm no longer a small business owner. Like I know, you know, now I'm going to church. Um, but it's there. And then the last one is that our churches are really built around, around relationships. So we don't need complex hierarchies to accomplish things. We don't need, you know, 
management by objectives, you can solve a lot of problems and most of our problems and most of our problems start and are finished in the parking lot, right? Um, mm. You don't you don't solve things usually in a committee meeting. And if you do, it's a 50-50 chance of whether it's going to be reversed in the parking lot after the meeting, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had many, many meetings where I... I thought we reached a consensus and then I saw the crowd in the parking lot and I would go, okay, I'm going to let that happen. And then somebody's going to call me tomorrow. And then sure enough, yeah. somebody called me the next day and said, Hey, we, we talked about it some more and we think this is the right route. Um, all those things just happen relationally, which means that yeah. when people care about their congregation, they want to be part of their congregation. They can actually start to um, lead a lot of high impact, low cost initiatives because they have the expertise, the manpower, and they're really doing it out of this relational goodness. So, um, yeah, I think those kind of those are the four strengths I see in almost all rural churches, especially in vital churches. So, yeah, I, it, there's a lot to offer just through that. Yeah, I love. I, I'm so thankful just to to put into words kind of some of the things that you kind of recognize. I think when you're in a local church or in, in, a, in, a, in a local rural church that's small, and uh, that you know, what are the strengths that we have and um, and you certainly, I mean, I found that to be true in certainly church we serve now, but also in lots of churches that I've been part of before this that have been rural where, where, you know, yeah, there is a, uh, it is the place where you get a wider cross section of the community than really anywhere else. Um, you know, uh, I, I was thinking about in our, our community, the only other place where people do sometimes gather somewhat regularly is at like the school, but that really knocks yeah. off a, por- a portion of the population that doesn't have school children. I mean, if they, obviously if they have like grandchildren or something, but, um, even there it's, uh, you know, it, it, it there's, it's only, uh, whereas, you know. We, certainly not everybody in town is at church, but they certainly, um, we get a representative of a lot of different, you know, all the drivers in town of things that happen uh, pretty yeah. much uh, have representation at church with us on Sunday morning. So, And I love how like fast things can happen in a small membership rural church. Like mm. I, I remember, this is a silly story, but um, when I got to my parish in North Carolina, we needed to do some like general maintenance things to make the church look a little bit better, um, like painting things, right? Um, mm. As you can imagine, there was a lot of conversation about like, can we afford it? Um, what color should we do it? So I remember one of the trustees said, well, how about we do this? Like, let's all adopt a room to clean and freshen up. Those are the exact, like, we're going to freshen these rooms up and everybody can adopt a room and you'll be responsible for that room. So two of the trustees, after several meetings of not getting approval to paint the hallway, decided to adopt the hallway. And I came in one day and they had hired a painting crew like to come in on their own volition yep. and no one batted an eye because they're like, Oh yeah, yeah. They, they adopted it. Like they were going to, yep. <laughs> so it was, and I mean, it doesn't hurt our church. Like now we're not having to spend the money. They're yep. getting extra really um, to do this. And they solved a problem just through their own relational happenings. Like it's great. I love that. I, I wish we would love that more. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that happened early on in our, our ministry, six months after we started our ministry, we had our, our building burned. Um, and so we've been in this long <laughs> rebuilding, which has been, it's, uh, it's ended up being amazing, but uh, there's so many stories of stuff happening like that, where it's just like something needed to get done and we either didn't have it in the budget or hadn't talked about it. And I, I mean, obviously some of the stuff you have to talk about, but there would just be like, Oh, um, you know, uh, the brother of somebody who's at church is a painter and Oh, he has some time. We're going to just paint the upstairs right now. Um, and I'm like, you know, as the, as the, uh, you know, sort of general contractor. Okay. Well, do we have paint? Okay. Then we're good. Yeah. Let's just do it. <laughs> let's well, get it and even just picking the paint color, uh, you know, two people basically chose the color and, 
it was going to be for the sanctuary. And then we liked it so much that we just painted the whole building (laughs) the same color. And I have not heard one complaint. (laughs) Everybody was like, oh, I didn't have to make that choice. (laughs) Like we were excited about it. Right. And my other favorite story was um, one day we need, we were going to put in like these led lights. We got a grant to put in led lights in our gym. And um, we needed uh, one of those lifts to go up to get to the ceiling. And it was going to be way too much money to get it. And so one of the guys literally he like, he's in the meeting and he goes, this is dumb and walks out of the room for a minute, drives down to the volunteer fire department down the street and goes, you guys got one, right? Could you, could we borrow it? And then goes, the fire department's going to come do it. He's down the street. He's fine. Yeah. 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 And you know, that, that kind of interconnected relationship with other organizations and things is, is and that's how stuff works in small and rural places Yeah, uh, in general for stuff. And uh, it, uh, we should celebrate that as churches. Cause I think it is real strength. I think you're, you're definitely right there. Um, now one challenge for rural congregations is developing good ways to evaluate our effectiveness. What did you learn about how to evaluate the ministry of rural churches through the writing process? Yeah, so this is where I started to get in trouble, um, and like <laughs> with people in general. I okay, I'm going to start by saying this. I think average worship attendance is a absolutely terrible metric, right? It just doesn't tell you anything. Um, it tells you, well, it does tell you one thing. It tells you how many people are sitting in a pew. Um, mm. So it, it doesn't it doesn't tell you how many people are giving. It doesn't tell you what people are learning. It doesn't tell you how many people are applying whatever they're learning to their lives. Like it tells you how many people are there. And we've turned this into like our driver metric, right? And it's not a great metric. Um, so when we think about metrics, I it's a little bit difficult because sometimes we only think about like those top down ones um, where like the higher ups will give us something to report. So average worship attendance has been one of those stand-ins. Um, annual giving has been one of those stand-ins, but not like off the books giving or the in-kind donations, just like how many people put dollars in the offering plate. So these don't necessarily work in rural places that are relationally driven and mm. um, where people are participating in a lot of different ways. So I think we have to look at what we like to talk about as horizontal metrics, um, which are things that are just within the congregation itself. And what I find are these indicators um, in rural churches, there's three main indicators, and these are not metrics of themselves, but they are ways for churches to start thinking about their own metrics that make sense for their communities. So one is how do you, think about your theological identity. Um, like are people, are the sermons and the, and the Bible studies, are they connecting to the lives of everyday people? Are people talking about things like vocation? Um, so I like to tell the story of one of my young adults in my last church who um, I really wanted her to be a youth pastor because in the church, you know, we think about vocation as ordination. Um, and I was like, oh, you need to be ordained. You need to be ordained. And she mm-hmm. finally just said, look, no, I want to be an occupational therapist and I want to be an occupational therapist because I believe everyone is created in the image of God and I want to help people live into that and embrace that fullness. And she particularly wanted to work with autistic children. Um, and here's this, I mean, wonderfully formed spiritual, mm. theologically deep vocation um, that some pastor had gotten right before. And, but we, you know, we're like, that's, I think is a sign of a strong theological identity and we need to yeah. make sure we're holding that up. Like, so what does it mean? to be a, um, a Christian business owner? What does it mean to be uh, a volunteer, like a Christian volunteer in the community? What does it mean to be mm. a Christian doing X? So are, is your congregation thinking about that? Are you living into the mystery of how we grow in our faith? 
Um, so that's one as, as a good, strong theological identity. Um, and then number two is a commitment to our community. So we often think like we are those anchor institutions, right? So how are we showing that commitment to the community? Do we know the story of our communities, both the good parts and the bad parts of the community? Do we know the gifts in our community? Like, do we recognize what God is already doing? Um, do we know where there are needs in our community, both within our congregation and outside of our congregation? Do we know what other nonprofits exist within our community, right? Like just basic things. Like I see vital churches um, understand these things better. And so like an easy metric for that is how many people are volunteering in your congregation, like outside of your congregation, like mm -hmm. annually do a survey. How many people um, do something outside of church, right? Because that's a way that they're living out their theology. That's the way they're living out their faith. Yeah. Um, and then the third one is stewardship. And we often think about stewardship as just money, but um, we have a lot of assets that we have to steward. We have a lot of gifts we have to steward. So one is the, the assets to the people, their volunteer hours, their in-kind donations. Are we properly keeping track of that? Do we know how many hours somebody's going to give us? And like, are we actually saying thank you for that? Um, mm. We sort of expect people to come and fold bulletins or expect people to clean the sanctuary. And I think one thing that I encourage churches to do is put a number next to that. Like if you had to hire someone, how much would you um, pay them? And, yeah. you know, if you're having to pay minimum wage for someone to come fold bulletins, when Ms. Francis comes folds bulletins every, you know, Wednesday afternoon, um, like thank her for that generous contribution of not having to pay someone, you know, a hundred bucks that day, right? Yeah. Or, you know, however yeah. much money you have to pay. Um because you're saving a lot of money over a year. So like, are we valuing those things? And then other assets in our community, other resources. So are, are we valuing the relationships in our community, those relationships with the nonprofits? Are we, are we being good stewards of that? Are we being good stewards of the fact that we might be the only place that has space for people to meet? Are we being good stewards of um, the, the aptitudes of the people in our congregation? If they have a particular gift or they want to grow in a gift, are we valuing that? Are we, finding ways for them to use that and grow in their, in their faith. Um, so stewardship, I think has to go beyond just like, can we keep the lights on a pair of bills? It's this much wider conversation about how we take care of all the different things. So I like to ask churches to, to think about those three indicators for themselves and then say like, what works in your particular congregation? And so sometimes people have really creative metrics. So like I heard one, it was just like, these are never formal, right? Like a lot of these are narratives. But I heard one yeah. pastor say, I make a tally of every time somebody talks to me about my sermon outside of church, mm. so not like the Sunday line, but like when I'm out in the community having um, like coffee with somebody, do they talk about my sermon? Like, that's the way I think about the theological identity. Am I getting through? Um, one that I used to do is I, and I still like to do it is a hundred pointless cups of coffee. So in, I don't know, six months or a year, um, have a hundred pointless cups of coffee with people in the community that are both within mm. the church and outside of the church. Um, because, and not, I mean, when I say pointless, I mean like, you know, you're going to talk about like what they like to do for fun. Yeah. You know, what are they yeah. watching on Netflix? <laughs> um, but I have made so many great partnerships out of that because people mm. have these interests that I never knew about. Um, and that's one that I see a lot. And so there's lots of really small creative metrics that our denominations will never ask to report, but mm -hmm. I think they're worth reporting um, with it for ourselves. And they'll help us figure out how we can be more vital. Thanks. That was, yeah, that's, and good, good stuff to think about. I certainly stuff that um, having read some of it's in the book and some of it there, you know, just having thought, 
already made me think about like, oh, how, how, some things that we could approach a little differently or yeah, yeah. think about, are we being effective in this way? Yeah. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us before we uh, say our goodbyes. How can our listeners find you online? Yeah, uh, you can find me online on Twitter. I am at A.T. Stanton, um, I think. And you can also email me at um, ATS at UTHSC.edu. Um, I love to hear stories from rural churches. So if you're listening and you're a rural pastor, mm-hmm. I like to collect your stories. And sometimes I write about them for places. And sometimes I just like to call and listen. Um, so no one ever takes me up on it. But please send me your stories or tweet at me. Um I will warn you that my Twitter feed is very boring. It's a lot of rural stuff and Wake Forest basketball. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Alan, for for spending some time with us today. And uh, we really appreciate the conversation. And yeah, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to hearing more from you as we go forward. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Small towns were once the core of North America and churches literally stood in their center. Decades of population and economic shifts combined with practical challenges, have taken their toll. Rural regions and the churches that bind them now find themselves in unfamiliar territory. While so much has changed, the need for local bodies of Christ is as important as it has ever been. But if rural North America has changed, what does it look like for the rural church to experience revival? It will begin with rediscovering the mission at the heart of the gospel where God sends Jesus to minister to the small towns of Galilee, and Jesus sends his church to the whole world. It will be driven by visionary pastors and lay leaders who take risks and try new approaches to reach those who have no church home. Rural Revival Summit is a two-day digital event happening April 21st and April 22nd that will introduce you to other ministry leaders serving in small town and rural contexts to provide examples and inspiration for being the church and addressing the needs unique to your community. At the Rural Revival Summit, you will meet other small town church leaders who understand the struggles you're facing. Hear stories from real-life practitioners who are forming new and different expressions of the church that uniquely connect with their rural settings. And explore practical approaches to church leadership and discipleship developed by fellow rural ministry leaders. Small Town North America has changed and will keep changing. The Rural Revival Summit will give you new hope for what God can do in your town, your church, and in the lives of the neighbors you love. Join us on April 21st and 22nd, 2023 for the summit. Find out more at freshexpressions.com slash rural revival. So I hope you found that interview as helpful as I did. I think as we did together, it certainly was uh, illuminating and really helped me reflect on some things. Um, one of the things we want to do after each interview, we're going to just kind of talk about one thing that we both uh, had as a takeaway from the interview. So Kathleen, uh, what was uh, one thing you took away from that interview with Alan? A strength of rural churches is that our churches are built around relationships mm. and that we should use that as a strength. Yeah. I, you know, our church, uh, the small uh, smaller churches are just... Uh, they have the ability to kind of be in relationship with most everybody who's at church on a Sunday. And uh, um, that can really be a strength um, and really uh, allow for 
uh, growth to happen together. So um, it's one of the things that I've always appreciated, but I've pretty much always been in churches that were rural and that were relatively small in number. So that's been something important uh, for me. Uh, I love what he talked about with a hundred cups of coffee. I don't know if I can quite make a hundred cups of coffee with a hundred different people, certainly not with a hundred different people, but a hundred cups of coffee happen in the next year. But I uh, want to, it, it made me be like, I need to make sure that I'm making a priority. Once again, something I knew, uh, before, but something I was reminded of again, got to make a priority to just sit down with people, not necessarily to have an agenda, just to talk with them, see what's going on in their lives and, and listen to that. And I think whether you're a pastor or just a leader in a rural uh, church community, a lay leader, I would encourage you to spend that time just getting to know people, um, some, sometimes people from church, but also people um, from outside of your church community as well. See what they're, see what people are passionate about in your community. Um, uh, at, because that is one of the ways that we figure out how we can be that, um, anchor institution, I think, in the community. So, so yeah, I uh, hope you found that illuminating. One of the things we want to do, one other thing we want to do um, as we kind of conclude our podcast each week, just to kind of give you a fun story to finish up on, uh, what is one thing that happened recently in our lives that reminded us that we live in a rural location, Kathleen? Uh, so Pastoral Appreciation Month uh, is in October. And um I've talked to other pastors. Sometimes our church has something very organized and sometimes it's, you know, less organized and that's fine. Like, I mean, when they appreciate, they, they definitely appreciate say, we us. We feel so, very yeah. appreciated. So um, probably our last, our last appreciation month uh, was a little less organized, which is fine. Um, we, we get it. We're all in, we're, yeah, we're, we're sometimes a little more organized or less exactly. organized depending on what's um, going on in life. But uh <laughs> We, we had someone, uh, we have a family in our church that raises, uh, chickens, meat chicken for meat. Um, and so we, they, they raise them and then they put them all in their freezer and they, one of them showed up at our house with one of those meat birds. And, uh, let me tell you, we felt so loved by, um, them sharing, I, like, I mean, they, they work really hard to take care of these chickens. And so, we felt so loved. We love roasted chicken. So like it was a treat for our whole family. Um, and I love that. I, I love that we can live in a place where that's something yes, that happens. Certainly uh, a good reflection on rural life, right? When somebody shows up uh, with a chicken that they raised themselves uh, to give you for uh, as, as a gift. And uh, um, yeah, uh, one of the things uh, uh, that is just reminding us that we certainly do live in a rural area and we love living in a rural area. Mm. So I'm sure if you live in a rural area, you have stories like that as well. They're part of what makes it great. Well, and we'd love to hear your stories. We would. We so would. feel free to contact us by emailing us at podcasts at freshexpressions.com. And you can join our Facebook community, which is Rural Revival Podcast Community. Um, and we would love to hear your stories. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to just share uh, brief ones with us, um, and we'd like to share them with other people potentially on the podcast a little bit, if, uh, if, if we find ways to do that. Um, one of the things I think that's really important uh, and, and one of the things that that Alan said really well in his interview was that you know if you know if you know about one rural church you know exactly one rural church he's 100% correct there but one of the things that we can do to encourage one another is you know you're going to hear some stories about the ways that God's working in other churches and in our communities and that's really going to give us the opportunity to hopefully uh, get those get the brainstorming ideas going and the creativity going on our own as well rural revival podcast is part of the Rural Revival Summit, an initiative of Fresh Expressions happening April 21st through 22nd. 
The summit is a two-day digital event exploring new possibilities for small town churches. Learn more at freshexpressions.com slash rural revival summit. Fresh Expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive in the places we live, eat, work, and play by leveraging the creativity and endurance of the inherited church. To learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of church that works in small towns, big cities, and everywhere in between, go to freshexpressions.com slash how to start. To connect with this podcast, you can email us at podcasts at freshexpressions.com. Rural Revival Podcast is hosted by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Blackie. It's edited by Joel Limbon and produced by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Morton. Our North American director is Dr. Christopher Becker. If you have learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on social media. Let us end with this prayer for town and rural areas from the Book of Common Prayer. Lord Christ, when you came among us, you proclaimed the kingdom of God in villages, towns, and lonely places. Grant that your presence and power may be known throughout this land. Have mercy upon all of us who live and work in rural areas, and grant that all the people may give thanks to you for food and drink and all other bodily necessities of life. Respect those who labor to produce them and honor the land and the water from which these good things come. All this we ask in your holy name. Amen. Amen.